I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Once again, podcast fans, I'm speaking to you before you've heard any music this week to bring you an update on our live show, which, as you well know, is taking place on Thursday the 31st of May here at the Telegraph's office in our nation's capital, London. I'm delighted to announce that I'm going to be joined by Sam Wallace and a special guest. It's Jeff Hurst who's coming to join us on the night, and you can be there too. Head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash total football to secure your tickets. They're absolutely free, and we'll have a very pleasant evening together. On with the show. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Line Trust, specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. We have our 2017-18 season FA Cup winners and it's Antonio Conte's Chelsea. But how much longer will they belong to Antonio Conte? And what does this victory mean for the Jose Mourinho Misery Index? Plenty to analyse from Saturday's game at Wembley, plus an England World Cup squad to get into and feel counterintuitively bullish about for at least the next three weeks. We'll head to the geographical centre of the country and speak to our Midlands correspondent who has an excellent view of the managerial merry-go-round. He can tell us all about the manager's disembarking, who's looking to come aboard one of the fancy decorated horses and whether or not a bad metaphor can hold up for an entire six-minute conversation. Plus a look ahead to the Football League playoffs with Michelle Owen, who will assess the six teams looking to level up from the Championship and Leagues 1 and 2 on Bank Holiday weekend. But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by our chief football correspondent, it's Jason Burt. Jason, how are you? I'm fine, Tom. Feeling positive after the FA Cup final? I'm not feeling positive after the FA Cup final, but I'm positive because it's out of the way. (laughs) Not a classic, but Chelsea did enough, didn't they? Who impressed you most on the winning side? Chelsea did did a number on Manchester United, which will absolutely satisfy Antonio Conte, uh, no doubt, especially in that first half. But I think it was Eden Hazard's final for me. I know Antonio Rodiger... Gary Cahill and Courtois, the goalkeeper, played very, very well for, for Chelsea, defended brilliantly. But really, Eden Hazard won that final in the goal, the way he won that penalty. And his overall play, I think Manchester United just didn't know how to deal with him. 
they tried to put a man on him and under Herrera, but he, he moved out of position to the right wing and Herrera didn't know what to do. I thought he played really well, really intelligently, and he was the big difference, uh, I, I felt, between the two sides. Doesn't seem enormously happy at Chelsea Hazard. Do you think it depends who the next manager comes in is and, and how well they get on with Hazard? Is that going to be what makes his mind up about whether yeah. to stay or go? Yeah, Matt, Matt Law wrote a very good piece about, about the situation with, with Eden Hazard, and, it, and he has reached a point in his career where I think he, he has to decide what he wants to do and, and also what Chelsea want to do because he's had a great deal of success at Chelsea but there are obviously there are question marks of whether or not he's really fulfilled his potential and can he can he do that at Chelsea he is their star player he's very happy with his life in London but there comes a point where you think actually maybe he should be pushing on a bit more and I think he's earned that right to also challenge Chelsea and say show show me your ambition as well you know He's one of the top players in the world, or he should be. But at the moment, he's getting overtaken by the likes of Kylian Mbappe and so on. People aren't quite talking about him as a Ballon d'Or winner or one of the players who could be sort of, you know, lighting up the World Cup. And you'd have expected that by now with, with him. And you wonder whether or not he's suffering a little bit because he's in a bit of a comfort zone at Chelsea or maybe he stayed there too long or maybe Chelsea don't use him in the right way. But you see when he performs like he did yesterday, just what a difference he makes to that team. It may be that they turn around and say, actually, if somebody offers... 200 million for you we'll take it because we can rebuild a side with that money but I think they obviously they want him to stay but you're absolutely right I think he's earned the right to say to them what are you going to do for me now Aside from Hazard uh, performances of Bakayoko and Rudiger especially did did they suggest that things might be slightly better for Chelsea next season there's some encouragement there I think it's really difficult to assess Chelsea because Although they won the cup final, they, they played well in terms of the tactical side of it. There were some good performances. It didn't seem quite right still to me. You're still looking at them thinking, yeah, they probably are no better than the fifth best team in the Premier League. And that isn't good enough for them. And I think there's an awful lot of work to be done there. I think Chelsea really have an identity crisis this summer. They really need to decide what they want to be as a club. And I think that also goes down to who the new manager is going to be, because obviously we fully expect Antonio Conte to leave. I think they've reached a point in their life under Roman Abramovich where they're going to have to be brave and they're just going to say, right, we're not going to spend loads of money now. We're actually going to go with these young kids, go with some of these young players. We're going to talk about the England squad later, but Ruben Loftus-Cheek, they have to make a big decision about Loftus-Cheek because you could argue that he has earned the right, the way he's played for Crystal Palace this season, to come back to Chelsea and be one of their main men, to build the team around him, give him the opportunity to be a star at Chelsea and give a manager the chance to actually create a team that can challenge in two or three years' time rather than this boom and bust cycle of winning the league, finishing 10th or 5th or whatever, winning the league, finishing 10th or 5th and keep sacking managers. And I think you look at that team and you think, yes, they did okay, but there's an awful lot of work to be done to actually try and work out where they're heading as a club. Obviously, we're recording this Sunday, no news yet about Conte, but have you ever known a situation like this, where it's, aside from a pre-announced retirement or someone who's going to leave a club, where it's been so clear that the manager's not going to be around next season, that this is going to be his last game? Every manager at Chelsea, basically, (laughs) I've been here so many times before. No, I mean, we we were talking about it yesterday. I've been to a couple of cup finals in the last few years where... Um, Roberto Mancini was the manager of Manchester City. The news broke the day before that he, was, that obviously Manuel Pellegrini was was going to uh, take over there, and you couldn't find anyone from Manchester City that, that day uh, to talk about it. Uh, obviously, were, were when, Chelsea talking about it yesterday? Was anyone around? No, but... I couldn't really find anyone to be honest. I don't blame them, to, but I think the difference you, you're right with this Chelsea uh, situation is it's been all season. I mean, basically, it broke last summer. The, the relationship broke. Um, Antonio Conte wasn't getting on with the club's hierarchy. They were getting fed up with him. He was wanting one thing, they were wanting another. And what was interesting yesterday is six times in the press conference, he said, I will not change. That's a clear challenge to the club to say, if you want me, I'm not changing. They want him to change. They want a diff- 
What's interesting is I took a phone call when Antonio Conte was appointed Chelsea manager and I was told this is going to end in tears because he's a high maintenance guy, he's going to be really difficult to deal with, but he'll probably win them stuff. And they probably at that stage accepted that. But I think he has been very high maintenance for them. And, and he, he will say that that's the way I am. You know, I'm Antonio Conte, I was at Juventus, I was at Italy, you, this is what you expect from me. But certainly the relationship was so damaged last summer that I think I really felt even then there was no way back. He seems to have alienated the players as well. What's he done there to get them offside as well? The chopping and changing the side has been a problem. I think they were a bit shocked at some of the changes he has made. David Luiz and Willian are interested because Willian is basically, both are incredibly popular at Chelsea with the players and with the, with the fans. Willian, when I've seen him play this season, has been exceptional. You know, he's the player's player of the year. He's been brilliant for them, but... He just wasn't in the team. David Luiz seems to have been um, a sort of locking of horns almost there, which from what I understand, it wasn't really David Luiz's fault. I think Luiz was trying to sort of help out Rudiger, basically. I think there was some discussion about where they played in the back three and so on. I think Luiz was trying to engage with the manager. But Conte's from that sort of school of management where it's my way or the highway. You know, you're with me or you're against me. It's like, you know, Mourinho and so on. Very strong character. When it's going well, very intense. Everyone's with him. Everyone's on board. When it goes wrong, obviously it's very easy to to alienate people and to fall out with people. And you've got a number of characters at Chelsea also, let's be frank, who have seen off a number of managers. So sometimes they'll probably just turn around and say, actually, I'm probably going to end up being here longer than you anyway. So let's just see what happens. I think David Luiz is probably in that situation. I think he's probably sitting tight, waiting to see what happens and may well be back in the team at the start of next season with, with Conte gone. But you're absolutely right. I think he's chopped and changed quite a lot. He's made it quite clear, and I think this is a real mistake, that there are a number of players there that he just doesn't rate. He just doesn't rate them. They weren't his first or second choices, but he was involved in the signing of our, of our Morata, and he's talked him up, and he's talked him down, and he's talked him up, and you're thinking, well, actually, this is the record sign in the club's you're the club, you're thinking, hang on a minute, we've broken our transfer record to bring this guy in. He was somebody you did want, then you didn't want, you wanted Lukaku instead, but we got Morata. We can't always get your, your first signings. And I think really that kind of breakdown of the relationship is the heart of everything at Chelsea. And it, and it goes back to also the Diego Costa situation, the message he sent there, which was regarded as quite brutal by a lot of the players. And they're thinking, they're probably sitting there thinking, if you're sending that to him, you can send that to me. So they were looking at it and thinking that's not really going to help our relationship with the manager either. A lot of worry in the Chelsea group chat, I imagine. We will get on to uh, managerial vacancies with John Percy later, but who's looking most likely to come in at Chelsea? And also, what next for Conte? He's, he's a big uh, capture for someone, isn't he? Yeah, he is. I think what they need to sort out, I, I don't think we'll get an announcement this week. I think it will probably be, we've got enough this week, actually. We'll probably get our, our, our still announcing Arteta. We'll probably get Marco Silva going to Everton. We'll probably get Manuel Pellegrini going to West Ham. As I say, we'll cover this later with John exactly, Percy. Exactly, yeah. So, but um, I don't want to steal John's thunder there. But um, no, but I think probably after that, we, we, I think the, one of the big issues with, with, with Conte is going to be the uh, paying up of his contract. So what you've noticed with him in the last few months in particular is he said, I've got a contract with Chelsea, I will honour that contract, i.e. if I'm going, I want my money. So I think that's an issue. I, I think he is personally prepared to maybe even sit out a year in the way that Luis Enrique has and obviously Guardiola took the sabbatical. And actually what we're finding now, nowadays is that your currency as a manager can increase by not being in work. You're suddenly like, oh, I remember him, he was fantastic, we'll get him back in. And these guys are earning so much money that they can afford to do it anyway. It's whether or not he really wants to work straight away. I think the avenues for him in terms of jobs are, are fairly limited because obviously he is a top manager. You can't just say, right, OK, I'll take the first job that comes up in the Premier League. 
he probably won't stay in England, I don't think. But his options elsewhere are, are probably quite limited. He probably had half an eye on the Paris Saint-Germain job. That's gone. There aren't many options for him in Spain or Italy. So he probably might sit it out and also make sure he gets his, gets his money out, out of Chelsea. Chelsea want to have a, an agreement, I think, whereby he goes by mutual consent and they don't pay him the full contract. So I think that's one issue that needs to, to be resolved. What's interesting is that during this, during this whole sort of process, people I talk to, I've said to them, look, hang on a minute. Okay, I, we think he's going. He probably is going. You know, look, the only thing I'd say with all of this is Roman Abramovich does change his mind. So he might turn around tomorrow and get his, sign a new contract. He, 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 it all comes down to one man, eventually, you know, eventually. So although we hear different things about the managers, that he's going and so on, but anyway, let's, let's take it as read that we think he's going. And I've said to people, well, hang on a minute, you're going to miss out on your targets to replace him because these guys are getting jobs elsewhere or whatever. And they always say to me, we will get someone. We will get the person we want. We will get someone. And they're confident in their structure at the club to, to, sort of, to do that. They don't want a manager who's going to come in there and rip it up. They want a head coach to work with the players. The club's confident in its own ability to recruit players. And that's obviously been one of the problems with Conte because he wants one thing. He wants more control. And nowadays, clubs aren't going to get that, give that away too easily. And you've seen that, obviously, with the Arsenal situation that the Arteta's going to be probably a head coach rather than the manager. Clubs don't want to give, they don't want to see that because there's too much money riding on it for a start. There's too, much, too many decisions to be made. Can't give it all to one man. That's all changed. Anyway, to cut a long story short, <laughs> I think Conte may well um, take a sabbatical. I love the idea of the Conte gap here, going to a full moon party and just shouting well, at revellers. Except the only thing about that, and I, I, and I agree with you on that, the only thing about that is this is a guy who couldn't resist while on holiday texting Diego Costa. You're thinking, somebody said to me at Chelsea, no, why did he do that? It's like, just leave it, leave your phone alone. Just like, it's like... It's like you and I got a Twitter late at night and sort of posting something we shouldn't post oh, or whatever. Not me, Jason, you know? not me. But you think, <laughs> exactly. But you think, you know, just leave it. Why? I mean, somebody, somebody said to me, why did he do it? Just leave it. You know, you think he's probably sitting there. Probably a guy who can't resist getting back into work as quickly as possible. But I think he's at, he's at that level of management where the jobs are so few and far between. You know, you can't just, as I say, get the first Premier League job or Serie A job that comes along. He'll want the right job. And also these guys, and the, these guys reach a level of salary where they say, that's my, that's my going rate. You know, you see that with Carlo Ancelotti, you see it with Luis Enrique. That's my going rate. You, that's my, I'm not going below my going rate. You know, I know what I'm worth. And, and only a certain number of clubs can pay that. What about Manchester United, Jason? Um, Mourinho doing that now familiar sort of baffled, incredulous, faux, stoical thing afterwards. Do you think he will have torn into his players at half-time despite all of that? They were wretched in the first half. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? Because I think the second-half performance was a lot better. And we've seen that quite a lot from Manchester United this season where they've played poorly first half. Obviously, the Manchester City game where they were two goals down and getting absolutely taken apart and did brilliantly second half. They were far better second half yesterday, but not good enough. I mean, I never really thought, even though they had a couple of opportunities, that they were going to actually win that game. I thought they may have taken it to extra time. But then you ask yourself, hang on a minute, they're playing Chelsea, you're a bit of a wounded beast. They've had a couple of bad results going into that cup final. Everyone yesterday was saying, look, Manchester United are the favourites. Mourinho's got this amazing cup record. Conte's never won a cup. Man United will probably win this game. And then the way they started, you just thought, hang on a minute, they're just not up for this. They're just not. Now, when that point was put to Jose Mourinho in the press conference, he was absolutely smacking it back down and said, you come up with this classic line about, oh, now I see the way you're asking these questions. I, I may as well not say anything at all. And then he said, I'm really interested to see what you're all saying, on the, what you're all writing and saying and whatever in the next couple of days. And you're thinking, OK, fine. Is there any sense in the room that the journalists are fed up of this? you looking oh, yeah. at each other and rolling I mean, your eyes and being like, for no, God's I mean, sake, I, not this again. I've dealt with him for 16 years and I've heard this shtick before many, many times. And 
for a while it was okay, now it's a little bit tiresome. And I think the problem is that he's almost like a vampire to me. You know, it's like I always felt the fact he'd come in with wearing a cape because he's just sucking the life out of the situation. You know, you look at Manchester United and you look at their players and you look at their attacking options and you look at what they've got and you think, why aren't they... Why aren't they just playing better? Why aren't they just playing more expansive, interesting, attacking football? And it's like that kind of control, that rigidity, that sort of lack of expression. And you're thinking, goodness me, football has moved on. You know, he will argue to the cows come home that they're better this season and blah, blah, blah. 81 points, which has been enough to win the league. The the biggest thing I hate, I hate this comparison that they'd have won the league. They're different teams. You're not playing the same. You're not playing the same teams that played. all these things to me are arguments to justify yourself. When you're constructing arguments to justify yourself, you're not, you're not justifying yourself. The, the results, the performances and the trophies justify you, not arguments you construct. And then we get one, one, one of the big things this season as well is the, 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 the big argument about spending and whether or not Manchester United spent this and Manchester City has spent that. You're thinking, no, they've both spent huge amounts of money. One team is playing brilliant football and one team is not. Therefore, one team has spent the money well and one team has not. And who is fundamentally responsible for that? One manager and the other manager. So you compare the two and you're thinking, listen, I go to a lot of football matches. I've seen an awful lot of Manchester City this season. I've seen an awful lot of Manchester United this season. There's not been one single Manchester City game I've gone to and thought, wow, that wasn't great. That wasn't a good football match. There's been an awful lot of Manchester United games I've gone to this season and thought, blimey. Is that, is that the best they've got? And, OK, there's the other argument about it's not an entertainment business. Well, it, I think it is an entertainment business, and especially at the top level, I think you have a duty to play good football. I really do. I feel quite passionate about it. And I think Manchester United just do not play good football. It's drab and lifeless, isn't it, at Old Trafford? And, and, and you're right, just, just not good enough, really, for them, for, for what they would be expected. I suppose the crumb of comfort for them this year, looking across the city, has been that Pep Guardiola doesn't tend to stay that long in his job, so there's a chance of thinking about the Exactly. That's really kind of upset. Edward no, I think I think I think I think people got to understand that Guardiola looks at Manchester City differently than he looks at Bayern Munich in particular because he went to Bayern Munich because it, he wanted to go to the Bundesliga and dominate the Bundesliga and Bayern Munich were obviously a dominant club already. It was an interesting stepping stone for him to go to Germany, then to England. The plan was always to come to England eventually. Then it was a question of which club does he take in England, and he could have gone anywhere really. And he certainly could have gone to Manchester United a few years ago. But I think he just reasoned that going to Manchester United, what could he do that Alex Ferguson hadn't done? What could he do? And, and also the structure at the club was different. So he goes to Manchester City. He's got Chiki Bagaristein, who was his former teammate, who's director of football. And he's got uh, um, uh, Ferran Soriano, who's the chief executive. Both he knows from Barcelona. He's going there in, in, with people he knows in a new environment, a club that's trying to do something different, that hasn't created a history before in this sense. Somebody said to me, he's actually trying to create the DNA of the club, which is a bit sort of fluffy and whatever. But you, know, you can see what he, what he means by that. He's got endless amounts of money and he's got all that backing. That's why he's gone there. So he looks at it differently. He looks at it more as a, a project, a longer term thing, that he can create something over a number of years and stay a bit longer. And almost also, what's quite interesting, somebody said to me this week, was he almost wrote off that first year. like, that didn't happen. In my, my CV, I didn't fail for one year. I didn't do very well for one year. It's almost like, this is year one now. So they go again, and then three or four more years after this. So I think there's no prospect at the moment leaving Manchester City in the near future. Manchester United and everyone else is going to just suck that up and get on with it. And it's up to them to challenge now. Because I hate what I do hate this season as well. is people saying, they're all, oh, they're a freak. They're a freak. They're amazing. They're a freak. It's like, well, hang on a minute. 
You're not some sort of you know, you're not some sort of thing that's coming from Mars. They're just a football club. You've got to take them on. You've got a football team. You've got to take them on. Don't don't write them off as a freak. That's defeatist. It's now up to it's now up to Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham to say right, okay, we'll we'll take that challenge on. You know, obviously they've got a huge budget. At Manchester City spent huge amounts of money, but some of these other clubs have got lots of money as well. Maybe, even though they spent hundreds of millions of pounds, maybe recently Manchester City has felt spent their money more smartly. Yeah. You think of the players they've signed as well, a lot of them haven't been, like, and compare them to United, who, who, who tend to go Ed- for the big stars. And, who you was know. after Edison? Who was after Leroy Sane? Who was after these players? You know, Benjamin Mendy, yes, people were after him, but not to the extent, Bernardo Silva, yes, but again, these are players who, they weren't like, he hasn't gone and bought Lionel Messi, he hasn't bought Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, he's, he's bought players who have got a lot of youth and potential. What he's done brilliantly as well, the, the average age of that team has come right down, right down. He inherited a team, average age of about 30, 31. Now it's 23, 24. That's incredible over, over that period of time. And as I say, he's buying players who are only going to get better. And I know it's a well-rehearsed argument this season. There isn't one single player in that City team who's not better under Pep Guardiola. Move on to the England squad, Jason. The sight of Phil Jones desperately running after Eden Hazard in the cup final and then putting in a doomed slide tackle for the penalty didn't exactly fill you with confidence for the World Cup. Now, we, we all fear we're going to see that same image in a few weeks' time in Russia. Do you agree with him being ahead of Smalling in no, the pecking order? I, I, I understand why. Um, yes, I do, actually. I think Smalling was far better than Jones yesterday in the cup final. I think Smalling... I think Smalling is a good defender in the back four with a defensive shield in front of him. I think he's quite a limited defender in terms of what he does. I think Jones has a bit more dynamism to him, he's a bit better on the ball. We're going to play a back three in Russia. So that what, what I think is really good about this squad that Gareth Southgate's chosen is he's chosen a squad to fit the system. Not just got these players and think, oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, how am I going to fit these into a team? These are really good players. No, he thought, this, this, is, this, this is the kind of makeup of the squad I want to go to Russia. So that's why Jones gets in ahead, ahead of Smalling. I don't think Jones will be in the team. I really don't. I think he's going to play Kyle Walker on the right-hand side of the three with John Stones and Harry Maguire. I think that's the three he's looking at. Are at the any moment. of those three certainties? Do you think? I think. I think. Well, Walker's a certainty for the team, sure. And, and I think he did so well in playing on the right of the back three that I think that's changed the mind of Southgate. And what's interesting about all of that is you then assume Kieran Trippier will be the right wing back. I wouldn't assume that at all. I wouldn't assume that Trent Alexander-Arnold's coming to the squad. If this kid starts in the Champions League final, which he will. Then you think, hang on a minute, there's a player playing for England, an English player in the Champions League final, therefore he must be good enough for England. It's, it's, like, it's logical, so it doesn't matter how old he is, he must be good enough. He's good enough for Jurgen Klopp, he's good enough for Gareth Southgate, and he should play for England. So he's going to be pushing Kieran Trippier quite hard. But I think, I think, I think what's interesting about this team with England is I don't think, and you, you can look at it as a negative and say, oh my God, he doesn't know his team. Well, obviously Gareth says he does know his team, but you could also say, actually, a lot of places are up for grabs. It wouldn't surprise me, for example, if Ruben Loftus-Cheek starts. I really think he's got... He's certainly been talking him up in the the previews. When you were there, when you were at the press conference on Thursday, you came away thinking, wow, he he really wants to play Ruben Loftus-Cheek. And again, I think, well, why not? And this kind of idea of lack of experience, I just don't buy it. I don't have it. I've just got no, I've got no worry about the experience issue. I think... Because what experience are England drawing upon? Sadness. Yeah, terrible experiences. And one of the, one of the problems at Euro 96 
was you had this young group of Tottenham players who are coming into the England squad. We're all thinking, great, you know, Deli Alley, Harry Kane. Euro 16, not Euro 96. Oh, sorry. If they, if they yeah. come in at Euro 96, they they'd be born. absolutely fine for they this weren't even, They weren't even born then, were they? That's the thing. Sorry, yeah, Euro 2016. I'm sure my age again. Um, but no, so I think there was a real worry after that tournament that actually these guys have been scarred by experience. So I wouldn't worry about that at all. And I think, you know, I think Jones is in the squad, but not necessarily in the team. I think Cahill is probably ahead of Jones in terms of actually playing in the team. But he's in for a reason. Any indication who's going to start in goal? Are they just going to audition yeah. him during the friendlies? No, I think, I think I th- I'm pretty sure it would be Jordan Pickford. Uh, and I think there's one moment that, that, that sealed it for Jordan Pickford. And that was when he was about 40 yards from goal uh, against Holland, where he, played the, he, he took possession and played the ball in field. And England went forward and, and, and scored a goal. And I think that in itself. So, so basically, you've got Butland and you've got Pickford. It's much for muchness in terms of their ability as goalkeepers. They're both good without being great. But Pickford, is, I, to my mind, is far better with his feet. And I think that is a key thing for, for Southgate. And he brings the ball. He's able to uh, pass the ball more accurately. And I think that will be the, what will sway Southgate into, into choosing him ahead of Jack Butland. Broadly, we're at the happy clappy stage at the moment where, where we're trying to, we're trying to see the positives. What have you thought of how Gareth Southgate has handled himself in the past week? Have you been impressed with him? Yeah, very much so. I think when he first took the job, he looked nervous to me uh, and I've been hugely impressed by him and hugely impressed by uh, the way he's gone about the job, but also his demeanour and his manner. And I think he's, he's Sam uh, Wallace in his column during the week called him the sort of quiet assassin and, and he is. And he, he puts people away. I mean, he put Wilshire away during the week. He talks about how he's not been playing very well. Uh, no manager really does that, you know. And he was like, uh, really unusual to hear. I mean, and Hart as well, wasn't it? He, he said, said, you know, he's just he not said, had a good a season as the other two. He also said, I could, I'm going with the young players. I could have picked a group of journeymen. And you're thinking, journeymen? You're talking about, how, how else, how would you get away with that? You know, and he's like, people say, oh, he's, he sounds boring. No, he says interesting stuff all the time. This guy's got a very clear idea of what... What the the big sign for me was the way the, the way he dealt with Wayne Rooney, and the way he basically transitioned or took Rooney out of the team. We had a press conference um, away in Slovenia when Rooney actually came and spoke about being dropped. This is this is far too mature for England. This is far too mature for football. We never do it. When we heard he was going to come and do it, we're thinking, hang on a minute. And it was great because it wasn't great that he was dropped. It was great the way it was dealt with. It was great for Rooney and it was great for Southgate. And I and I think. Listen, he might not be a very good coach. I've got absolutely no idea how good a coach he is. I think he knows what he's doing. And England might not do well in Russia. But I think he's quite an interesting character because also he's quite unique. So what you get with Gareth Southgate is you've got somebody who's done everything. He's played for England. He's had very bad experience at Euro 96 where he missed the penalty. And he's got a lot of reference points to go back to throughout his career as a player, as a manager, as an administrator. So basically on Thursday, he's talking about Euro 96, missing penalties or whatever. He's talking about pre-season tours and stuff when he was at Aston Villa. He's talking about being a manager himself in the Premier League. He's talking about being the England manager. He's also talking about grassroots football when he's standing on the touchline watching kids play and how they play out for the back and the, the pitches and, so, and all that. And this is a guy who went around the FAs, local FAs, persuading them to play on smaller size pitches, persuading them to change the way we actually think about football in this country. He's quite a unique character to be the England manager. And I think, without being too sort of, you know, over the top about him, we're quite fortunate, I think, to have him right now. Because I think he's the right man for us. The cycle that English football is in, we're not going to get much lower than this, although or Euro, or Euro 2016. <laughs> and I think we are, we are slowly, slowly, slowly on the up. And I think the underage teams doing well has been a massive boost, makes it more joined up. They use this, this word pathway, which I hate, but you, you know what you mean. There is a pathway now. So again, at the uh, press conference last Thursday, he's talking about Phil Foden. He's talking about Jadon Sancho. He's talking about Mason Mount. 
the young kid on loan at Vitesse Arnhem. You know, it's interesting. Previous England managers wouldn't even know who these kids are. Let's be quite frank. You know, he knows them all. They know him. There is a route through now into the England team. It's not going to be the same names, same faces all the time now. Finally, Jason, what did you make of the video reveal where, which announced the squad? I loved it. I loved it as well. I loved it. I we're, we're too old to be loving that video I, as much as well, we this, did. It's quite funny, this, actually, because I told the FA that, and they went, oh, no, it wasn't for you. Um, <laughs> but I showed it to my 18-year-old daughter, my, 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 my 12-year-old son. They loved it. I thought it was great. A bit of energy, a bit of life about it. Listen, it, it's for these kids. This is what it's for. The kids who are untainted by how horrible Absolutely. it has been in recent I'm, years. I'm a working journalist who's going to go to Russia to cover the World Cup. That's one thing. It's not for me. It's for the public. It's for the people who want you want to get energised about England. Or they're excited about some of these names, like Alexander Arnold and so on, coming in. Down. And I thought it was really nice. I liked it a lot. And fair play to the FA. That was quite an imaginative approach. And we need more of that. Listen... You know, what we forget all the time in sports journalism, and football in particular, it's fun. We, we take the life out of it all the time about getting so po-faced and all that, this and that. And, it, and that, that then influences the players. And what I also liked on Thursday was you get Marcus Rashford posting a message about his mum, thank you very much. You get Ashley Young posting a message of himself, a picture of himself as a kid wearing an England strip. That's great. To my mind, that's great. You got the sense he actually enoys Harry Maguire posting a picture at supporting the team at Euro 2016. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And I think they're trying to make it more relaxed. The atmosphere between the journalists and the players is getting better. We are dealing with them more. We are having, being allowed to mix with them a little bit more. That's got to help the situation. I, 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 thought, I thought hats off to the FA. It was, I thought it was a terrific video. Right, come on, Jason. Football's coming home, isn't it? Let's have a sing-song. <laughs> no, not, you already hear my singing voice. <laughs> not yet. There have been a spate of sackings in the Premier League in the past seven days with Sam Allardyce, David Moyes, Paul Lambert and Carlos Carvajal all gone. This is big news for the managerial merry-go-round, which is now spinning at a truly terrifying speed. Let's hop on board with our man in the middle of the country. It's John Percy. John, did any of these sackings come as a surprise to you? I don't think any of them did, did they, Tom, really? I think the Allardyce one was obviously the writer's been on the wall for weeks, months. Moyes, obviously, Matt Law, our man, wrote the story a couple of months ago that he wouldn't last a season, which has obviously been right. Um, Lambert was obviously a... Uh, a sort of appointment in January that they hoped would would work and lead Stoke to survival. It's it's obviously not worked out. And Carlos Carvajal um, started well, ended really badly, which is apparently sort of something he does quite often at his club. So I don't think anyone was really surprised at any of the four departures, but it was an absolute bloodbath last week, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Carvajal was a surprise appointment to begin with at Swansea. Do you think he or any of these others who have been sacked will get back on a horse immediately? Oh, I'm sure they will, yeah. I'm sure all four of them will be back soon. I think Carl Howell, obviously, um, he's attractive to championship clubs. I think, you know, his record on Wednesday, he spent a lot, but he's, you know, he was always in and around it. I think, you know, Allardyce and Moyes. Allardyce particularly, I think he'll be sort of waiting till sort of October, November for the next Premier League firefighting job. Moyes, obviously, he will, you know, he probably feel he was harshly done by at West Ham, so he will think he's still attracted to Premier League clubs. Uh, Paul Lambert, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes to manage in the Bundesliga now, to be honest. That'd be an interesting move for him. Do you think, is there no danger we're reaching a point now where managers like Allardyce especially are past their sell-by date? 
Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, you look at Alan Pardew, one at West Brom, and that's the one everyone sort of refers to as the sort of tired old merry-go-round, as you said. And I just wonder where Allardyce can go now. I mean, he's managed four clubs in the Premier League. I think the only ones that sort of you can sort of envisage him taking now are maybe Leicester, if they get rid of, you know, if they don't do Claude Powell this summer. I mean, that's one that maybe they would look at just to sort of keep them up. But apart from that, I don't see, really see any other clubs that would take him now. So, I mean, he's, whether he wants to retire or, you know, go abroad, I'm not sure. But I don't think there's many clubs now that would consider Sam Allardyce a sort of attractive option. And obviously now there's a lot of talk of the fans wanting entertainment, which is right. And I think that now is more prevalent than it's been for quite some time. And obviously with Sam, you get a certain style of football. Maybe that, that style of football is outdated now and, you know, has served its purpose. Talking about possible expirations of sell-by dates, what do you make of the seemingly imminent appointment of Manuel Pellegrini at West Ham? Well, I think it's a, it's a good appointment. I think, you know, obviously Pep's been an absolute breath of fresh air in the Premier League. But I think if you look at his record at Man City, it was it was very good. I mean, he won the league with arguably, you know, an inferior team. He got them to the Champions League semi-finals. So, I mean, his record was very good there. I mean, it's, um, it's just whether he can um, live up with that board because it just does seem a bit of a, of a manic club there. Mikel Arteta was previously riding the merry-go-round on the same horse as Pep Guardiola, just tucked him slightly behind him. But now it looks like he's going to get on a horse all of his own at Arsenal. It's a big risk for them, isn't it? Yeah, he's got good pedigree, though, if you want to keep the uh, horse analogy. Absolutely do, John. (laughs) His reputation is very good. I mean, if you look at it, I think most of the top managers in the Premier League have wanted to work with him or have worked with him at some stage. I mean, I'd be interested to see what his title's going to be, because obviously now Arsenal have got a very sort of solid structure in terms of the transfers and the directors of football. So I, I'd be, I, I think it'd be just a coach. I think it'd be a head coach appointment where he's just simply coaching the players and all the other things like transfers and dealing with rebel footballers will be will be other people. One side avoiding the merry-go-round entirely are on your patch, John West Brom, where Darren Moore has been appointed. How's he going to approach the championship? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a great appointment for West Brom. I think, you know, there's two sides to this one. I think, obviously... He had to get the job. He did a fantastic job of breathing, you know, fresh hope into that club. And obviously, you know, it doesn't send out a good message if young black coaches or young British coaches are not getting jobs. But I just think, I just think, you know, it is a gamble. It's a huge job in the championship. There's going to be players saying they want to go. I mean, obviously in the final weeks of the Premier League, not taking anything away from Darren, but, you know, they're on easy street. The pressure was off. You know, he won't be dealing with players wanting to say they want to leave. I just think it's going to be a massive job there of player recruitment, trading in and out. And I think, you know, it's going to be a big test for him. Hey, he may be, he may be a huge success. I really hope he is. He's a, you know, he's got a good reputation. He's a terrific guy. But I just think, you know, it's a big, big job at West Brom and it's going to be a lot of players leaving. They say that there's going to be players coming in as well. But obviously, you know, they've got the parachute payments so they can have a, a good go with bringing players in. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's just, I think the, the job is to get them up playing good football. So that's, that's going to be a dream, I think. Finally, John, who's out there at the moment and not getting linked with jobs who you think should be? A manager who can see the merry-go-round but isn't being invited to ride on it? Dominico Tedesco at Schalke. There's a name for you. I think he, in the next 12 months, will be the, the big name on everyone's lips. I think you know he's done a terrific job at Schalke. He's gone to second place. Uh, he obviously moved to Germany. He's Italian. He moved to Germany when he was sort of two years old. I think he sort of already been talked about as the next Jurgen Klopp or Tuchel. So I think a big job in the Premier League, if it becomes available, he'd be the sort of person that people will be looking at. Um, outside of that, I think, you know, more looking down the lower leagues, I think, you, you know, you Gary Rowlett, Dean Smith, Paul Cook at Wigan, I think he's done a terrific job. You know, he's, he didn't really get linked with him. He won the title with Wigan and Portsmouth. I think he got, I think he got Chesterfield promoted as well. I'm talking obviously championship jobs, but I mean, these are the sort of names 
particularly Paul Cook, you don't see you don't see very often. Yeah, certainly makes a change from Alan Pardew. Thanks very much for your time, John. Cheers, Tom. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yes, it's Football League playoff time. Broadcaster Michelle Owen is with us now to look ahead to next weekend's games. Michelle, it's Fulham versus Aston Villa in the $600 billion game at Wembley next Saturday. Youthful exuberance on the Fulham team from Ryan Sessignon and just experience from John Terry on the other side. Who do you fancy in that match? Right, well, being a Villa fan, which isn't a massively well-known fact, Obviously, I want Villa to win it. I just the way we well, the way Villa played in both legs of the semi-final against Borough wasn't that inspiring. I thought Fulham that second half against Derby was fantastic, and I just worry that Fulham are going to have a bit too much. You know, their problem is sometimes if they were going to have a problem, and it's not too bad a thing if they overpass it. Sometimes I just need to pull the trigger a bit earlier, but. I don't, it's really hard. It's a tough one to call. If for Villa, Jack Grealish has another amazing game, which he's so capable of doing in the middle of midfield, if John Terry's solid at the back, you know, if you've got a Doma flying down the wing, I, I'm sitting on the fence here a bit, but I think I'm going to go with my heart. I'm going to say Villa. Absolutely. You've got to, you've got to back your, uh, your favourite <laughs> team, Michelle. Um, but, yeah, it's really hard. These matches have seemed increasingly cagey in recent years as mm. the very large monetary value has gone up and up. But Fulham have been fun to watch this season and so have Villa at times. Are you expecting a slightly better game? I just hope Villa put on a bit more of a show than they did in, in the semis. But, you know, saying that, they got the result and I think Villa will just go with that mentality. That's how Steve Bruce will set up just to try and get a result. I think Kanovic with, with Fulham, he's just always wanting to play that, that free-flowing football. People call him like the Man City of the Championship, don't they? I think it'll be a decent game from Fulham. I just worry that Villa might sit back and try and absorb it a bit. And hopefully they won't do that because they've got enough talent of their own, you know, to go for it with um, Snodgrass on one side, Adoma on the other. So if they both play decent football, it could be a really good game. I just think it's a shame that it's on a Saturday, not the bank holiday Monday. Um, but that's because of the World Cup and international players getting that extra time to go off. But I prefer it building up from League 2, League 1 to the crescendo of the game on the Monday, but that's just the way around it is this season. What about the poor old pitch though, Michelle? Surely it should be the best possible pitch for the best possible teams. Ah, don't be mean about League 1 and League 2. <laughs> no, we'll get, we'll get but, on to League 1 and League 2. Yeah, no, I mean, it's always, it always looks great, doesn't it, Wembley? And I think, you know, with these types of games, I just think you get such a terrific atmosphere. I just think that the Villa fans and the Fulham fans are going to pack it out and it's going to be an electric atmosphere. Which of these two teams do you think will give a better account of themselves in the Premier League? Well, I mean, Villa have been there more recently, haven't they? And... They were just sort of dodging relegation for a few years. But I think the way they play now, like I've mentioned just before, Grealish in the middle, the way he likes to entertain, he goes on these runs, he just glides past players. That's what you want to see in the Premier League. You want to see exciting football players that are brave on the ball. And I think with Philly, you would get players that are brave on the ball. I think Snodgrass is brave. I think Adoma's brave. But with Fulham, you'll get that whole sort of total football experience with the passing from the back to the front. And I highly doubt Sessignon's going to be there next season I think he's going to Tottenham but if, if if they go up then they've got a chance he might stay 
And I think watching that Fulham team and the way they play, I've done them a few times this, this season for Sky, and they're a joy to watch. And they'd be a fantastic. Either one's a fantastic addition to the Premier League. It's it's the right two teams in the final for me. We often see the beaten playoff finalists struggle in the following season, but that would be a bit of a surprise for either of these two teams if they lost. Well, yeah, it was Reading this season, wasn't it? And they got off to such a bad start. And obviously, Yapstam lost his job in the end. And Huddersfield, you know, they've gone and done it and stayed in the Premier League. I think it, either one of these two, if they don't do it, you'd fully expect them to be up there again next season, especially if it's Villa, because they've got the budget, haven't they? So I'd back Villa to bounce back more than I would Fulham, to be honest, because I think if Fulham don't go up, they're going to lose a few key players. I think Kearney would go, Sessignon would go, and maybe a couple of others too. Moving on to the League One playoff, it's Rotherham versus Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury were in the automatic promotion places for most of the season. How difficult mm. will it be for them to put that disappointment behind them and, and forget about that and just focus on this game? Yeah, I think they already have. Um, they're a team I've done quite a lot this season as well. Um, they've played some lovely football at times. Um, and then if you watch the post-match sort of after one of the legs, you know, they felt that They've sort of put that behind them and not get any automatic spots. They were the team that, you know, they're the team that deserved to go up, aren't they? They're definitely the team that deserved to go through. But it'll be tough down at Wembley. You know, they've already lost their wants this season. But I think they see this as an opportunity to put that to bed as well, to forget about that. And they'll have learned so much from that checker trade trophy final. I quite fancy them. I do fancy them in the final. Finally, on Bank Holiday Monday, it's Exeter versus Coventry, which strikes me as the glamour clash this year in a weird way. Exeter now have the league's longest-serving manager in Paul Tisdale. Coventry on the comeback trail after a wretched few years. Who's coming out on top in this one, Michelle? Hmm, I'm going to say Exeter because, I mean, I've just done that to... I did both legs against Lincoln. And I just know how to get a result. You know, I Lincoln, they were clever. They, I mean, Matt Reed, if you've seen him, who plays for Lincoln, he's this beast of a man like in the nicest way he's so big he's so hard to deal with they were savvy they were clever they're, they're intelligent they know how to get things their way from the referee but they also love to play passing football and if you put them on that surface at Wembley some of the football they can play could be if the nerves don't get to them I think their nerves got to them last season could be amazing but Paul Tisdale I did post-match with him on Thursday night and he's so calm on the surface, you know, he said, you know, we're not jumping around, we're not getting overexcited because that's tempered by what happened last year when they lost to Blackpool in the playoff final. Paul Tisdale as well, I don't know if you know about this, but a couple of years ago when things were going really bad for them, they set off his notice period, which is two years. So in November, he's no longer the manager of the City, so he doesn't know what his future is. And I said, is this going to be at Wembley? And he said, it could be. This could be my last game for Exeter. So... You know, you think if they went up, it might not be, but he's been linked with MK Dons and all sorts. But he's a, he's a very intelligent man. And I just think he'll have learned so much from last season. There was quite a few players at Wembley with him last season. They've also got the striker, Jaden Stockley. He just always scores. He just always pops up with a goal. They've got classy players in midfield, like Hiram Botang, who scored that wonderful goal, Ryan Harley. And they're a good bunch. And with all due respect, it's a small football club. For them to be at Wembley is, is massive. And... Just personally for me, knowing the staff there, knowing the guys behind the scenes, I'd, I'd like to see them do it at, at Wembley. And especially if it's Paul last game, I think that would be a perfect way to go out, wouldn't it? Absolutely. A great weekend in prospect. We look forward to it. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. No worries. Thanks, Tom.
time for your hero of the week and there was a far more exciting cup final in Germany than we managed in this country at the weekend where Eintracht Frankfurt shocked Bayern Munich to take home the DFB Pokal which is German for the FA Cup of Germany. A great team effort from Eintracht to deny Bayern Munich the double, but our hero is the man with the most glamorous name in football, Nico Kovac, manager of Frankfurt, who said afterwards, I am happy for these amazing fans and for my team. When you stand together, you can do everything. That is what marks this team for my two and a half years here. And where's he off to? Bayern Munich, <laughs> of course. Jason, what's your favourite ever cup final upset? Well, it has to be the first cup final I can remember, which was um, when Southampton uh, beat Manchester United in 1976. Uh, Bobby Stokes scored the only goal. And I remember the commentary, David Coleman, uh, I think it was McCallyog played it through and he said to Stokes, onside. I remember subsequently there was a big argument about whether he was onside or not. And he, and he, and he obviously put the ball through and they scored in the 1-1-0. I think that season, I remember watching that game thinking, oh, Manchester United will win because they're like, you know, they think it's one of the top teams in England, obviously, at that time also. And I've just been so shocked that Southampton had won the match. And that was when obviously the FA Cup final was the biggest game of the season. And it was the first game I, I can remember watching. And I remember being very sort of captivated by the whole occasion and, and obviously Southampton winning it. And you've not chosen that just because our boss is a Southampton fan? No. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Too honourable. <laughs> That's all from Total Football this week. We'll be back with you next week following the Champions League final into your audio listening device in time for your Monday morning commute. If you urgently need to get hold of me before then, then please direct your internet powers to twitter.com where I'm at Tom with an H Gibbs. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Search for Total Football in Apple Podcasts or another podcast outlet of your choice. Our theme tune is by Mathrock Heroes Polvo. Head to mergerecords.com to buy their back catalogue. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers. If you're enjoying being part of the Telegraph Sport podcasting family, then do make sure to download and listen to Brian Moore's Full Contact. It's the most opinionated rugby podcast as every week, Brian and a host of big names from the world of oval balls analyse the biggest and most controversial moments from the weekend's rugby. Your Tuesday commutes will never be the same again, if you like rugby. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com